We're in a, city, uh, a series called uh, God and Country. And you know, there's a ton of old jokes about not, the two things you never want to talk about are what? Politics, Politics and religion. I'm going to hit them both today. So good news. We're going to get them all. You know, we've never, I, I, I feel like we've never shied away from talking about difficult topics here at Fullness. Because I believe the Word of God really addresses all of our lives. And there are principles that can be found that can help give us guidance and direction. And I, I just believe we need that today. We need the Word of God permeating our lives. We are a, we're a church that is fully grounded in the Word of God, embracing the person and work of the Spirit of God. And we believe these two great streams of God, the Word of God, Spirit of God, 100% of both, will give us direction and clean out our lives and help us live holy, righteous lives. So today I want to talk about should a Christian vote? Now, if you weren't here for the last three weeks, I'm going to preach all three sermons because I think it's really important uh, to, to lead into. If you haven't heard the last three, it's going to be, we could be jumping into deep waters. And I know many of you have been here already. So just in review, and I'm going to review really fast. My staff makes fun of me because I review every time, but that's the teacher and me. I just want us all to be on the same page. I want us to remember that our first allegiance goes where? It goes to God. It can go other, no other place than for us to be grounded as we're supposed to be grounded. If we try to place our allegiance in anything else, by the way, the, the Bible has a, a word for this. If we place our allegiance somewhere else other than in God, and it's called idolatry. And so we don't want to be idol worshipers of anything, including our nation. We want to have our first allegiance go to God. We want to f refrain from allowing national pride to overwhelm Christian wisdom. Uh, it is God first, and we need to keep that Christian wisdom. We need the Spirit of God directing us. We need to recognize, and I'm going to come back to this at the very end of the sermon again, so we need to recognize that God's Word is primary in our lives. If we lose a biblical worldview, we will lose our identity. We'll lose who we are. We also need to resolve to pray for our leaders. We're going to look at that again today. Uh, it's just part of who we're, we're to be. We're to keep praying in all circumstances to pray for our leaders. And we need to respect those who are different than you. Um, I'm, one of the videos, um, Jack actually, I sent him my sermon. Jack Williams has been involved in politics for ever since I've known him. And so I sent him this sermon to read through to make sure I wasn't making any major uh, gaffes, so to speak. He said it was the best thing he'd ever read. No, he didn't say that. Um, actually, he gave me some great ideas. But one of the things he, he kept pointing out to me was um, he, that he did point. He sent me a video of um, Justice Scalia and Justice Ginsburg, who are two radically opposite Supreme Court justices, and how close they were as friends. That they disagreed on almost every major decision in Supreme Court history, but they also spent every Christmas or every holiday together. Um, Justice Ginsburg was Jewish, but Scalia was Catholic. And, but they spent time together. Their families dined together. How they were friends. We seem to have lost that, that ability to disagree but love at the same time. Um, people are just so dang mad. I mean, really, they're angry all the time. And if you just, if we can't listen, if we can't have conversations, if we can't respect one another and respect one another's differences, we are stuck. God and country in that order. We need to resist allowing the prevailing 
flow of the culture to dictate our path. Many of us, we're just being caught up in the in the day-to-day, and we don't even know it, that the philosophy that the spirit of the age is driving us. And we need to, instead, we need to revive who we are as the persevering, powerful church of Jesus Christ. Because we have to trust in God. And we need to be people of impact. We need to live by godly convictions, to speak with godly wisdom, and to display godly confidence because God has called every single one of us to be people of impact in the world around us. God's desire is for us to change the culture and culture not to change us. We may be like Daniel or Joseph or any number of biblical characters who are living in Lands in which they're oppressed, ungodly leaders, ungodly culture, idol-worshiping people around them. And yet, because they stood for God, they were able to be like salt and light, as Jesus would say, in the culture around them, rather than allowing the culture to form them. Which leads us to today. Today, I would like to speak to us about what does it mean to be a Christian in 21st century America, the political realm that we are in, and how can the Bible help us as we face all of these decisions that we've got upcoming? Now, let me just say this first and foremost. I am not going to tell you who to vote for. If you're thinking, oh, Pastor Barton, he's going to tell me who to vote for, I'm not going to do it. I don't want who you vote for to be a litmus test for your fellowship at Fullness Christian Fellowship. Um, I I don't want that. I I know that we have people in this room who are going to vote in different ways, and we respect that. We love that. Um, So I'm not going to say that. Also, my fear is that if we're not careful, all of these things I've said on these first three slides will get out of whack. Um, because as there's this guy from my era named Charles Colson, Chuck Colson. He was an advisor to Nixon. He got caught up in the Watergate stuff. He was a hatchet man, really, for Nixon. Uh, he was one of the bad guys, really, when it came down to it. And then he got saved. His life got radically transformed. He started prison fellowship. He, he wrote some great books um, on the church and being born again. One of his great quotes is this, the kingdom of God will not arrive on Air Force One. <laughs> if we think it will, then we're, we've got some priorities out of whack. Our hope is in him. Now, having said all that, I just want to just jump right in. And, um, you know, generally I try to weave in some funny stories and illustrations and different things, but I've got so many points today, so many things to, to say that I'm just going to, I'm going to keep on moving. So if you are a note taker, you're going to want a bunch of sheets of paper um, because I've got a lot of points. But I, I want to say this. I believe that everything I'm going to give you today is biblically tethered. It's tethered in the word of God, and because that's who we are. Now, I also want to say that there could be differences among us, and that's okay. That's all right. Uh, This is 
you know, as God has directed me to preach. So the first point is this, should Christians vote? I've heard this question start to be asked much more in the last couple of presidential elections than I've ever heard it uh, asked before. There was an assumption that everybody voted uh, when I was younger, but now it's like, I don't know, I I can't vote for anybody, so should I even vote? You know, I feel unmoored. I feel like I can't support either party or either candidate. I can't do this and I can't do that. So why should I? Is it even immoral for me to vote for one of these people? Paul lived in an age when he didn't get an opportunity to vote, right? So he, they had an emperor. He didn't get to help pick who was emperor. Uh, the emperor was just assigned. And so all he could do was pray. And that's why in Timothy, he says this, I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all men. What does God want? And to come to a knowledge of the truth. Listen, again... I'm going to keep coming back to this over and over and over again that we need a biblical worldview. And I'm going to talk about some issues that I think should concern Christians. And you will notice on my list of issues is not economic prosperity. Because if economic prosperity is the issue that drives us, then we will have other things in mind other than being a gospel-oriented people. This passage to me says this, you're praying for this, peaceful, quiet lives, godly leaders. Why? So that all men may be saved. So that the gospel will go forth. Why do we pray for our leaders? Why do we, and and I'm laying the groundwork for, and and it's a kind of tricky question, should a Christian vote? I, I think my point here is that every Christian should vote. We should be a voting people. One is because it may lay the groundwork for the gospel to go out. Then in Acts, um, Paul is basically standing before an authority, a Roman governor in Caesarea where he's been imprisoned for a couple of years. And you may read this and say, oh, he's appealing to Caesar. But what he's really doing is telling this guy to do his job. He's saying to the magistrate, the governor, basically, I've been here for two years for no reason. I'm a Roman citizen. I've been falsely imprisoned. You haven't done your job, and so I'm appealing to Caesar. Now, this is the way I read it. In other words, Paul is saying governors, magistrates, people in authority, people with assigned authority, keep this in mind, hang on to this truth, people with assigned authority should do their jobs. They're it's, it's your stewardship. It's the stewardship thing to do, to do your job. I don't care what your job is out in the world, but these magistrates and governors, he's saying, do your job. And then in Romans 13, which I asked you to turn to earlier, he says, uh, could you go back one? I got too excited there. <clears throat> Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. Man, this is a tough passage. We look around at some bad rulers and say, wow, what is God doing? God's got a bigger plan. 
But God establishes his authorities. Then he goes on to say, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Then he says, for rulers hold no terror for those who do right. But for those who do wrong, <clears throat> do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Now, again, this passage is very rich in what it's saying. And, and there are times when Peter and Paul, they both stood up to the authorities and said, we have to obey God rather than men. But he's, there's a recognition. When I do that, they hold the sword. Even if God is in charge, God has put them in charge, and now they hold the sword. So he, here's the point I, I want to get to with these three passages. Paul is saying pray for leaders. Leaders matter because it, it allows the gospel to go forth. Magistrates, people in a governing roles, do your jobs and do them well. And the government is important because they hold the sword. And by the way, this is a key passage for where I'm going to preach on um, our role in responsibility with government and police force in a couple of weeks. Here's the thing. In America... Who puts the sword in the hands of those people? Well, I would say we do. Because of our governmental system, we're the ones who have the opportunity to put in place governing authorities. It's the, it's the beautiful, horrible picture of democracy is that we, the people, get to vote and we have the responsibility to Set the government so that it can, we can see the gospel go forth. And I would contend that we, the people, we are, we're, we're like magistrates. We're like governing authorities because we've got certain power and certain authority. As a result, we need to do our jobs. We need to be good stewards. In the city of Birmingham, and I don't think you can see this very well, but this is the flow chart that's it was pointed out to me this week, and I found it fascinating. This is the flow chart for the city of Birmingham. Now, you can't really read it, so you're going to have to trust me, but you can go to the Birmingham City website and find this. And the black box, the two yellow boxes that are near the top are the mayor and the city council, but the black box that's at the front, the top, where all power in Birmingham is supposed to flow from, is the citizens of Birmingham. In the, I, I looked it up, and the United States governmental flow chart, you know, you've got the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. You didn't know you were going to get a whole civics lesson today, did you? But above that, it's the Constitution of the United States with the words that say, we the people. The preamble of the Constitution begins with we the people. In other words, we supposedly stand at the top of all flowcharts in a democratic process. And so my contention is that God has placed in our hands a certain stewardship, a certain responsibility that says we should be good stewards, which in turn, I believe, because of the governmental system God has placed us. If he placed you as governor over 
the state of Alabama, we would want you to do your job, right? And God would say, you're good, to be a good steward as a Christian, do your job. I believe as followers of Jesus Christ in a democratic system that we are to do our jobs and be good stewards. How does that look? Well, let's talk about voter turnout. How about it? Voter turnout in the last five presidential elections has been around nationally around 55%. That's 55% of registered voters have voted. Now, 55% of registered voters, there's a ton of people who haven't registered. So the percentage of people who could possibly vote is actually much lower. In Alabama, now I, I really have trouble believing this statistic, but this is from the Secretary of State John Merrill's office. This is from his website. He says that 94% of eligible voters in the state of Alabama are registered. Other stats I looked up on other websites say it was closer to 66%. I don't I guess you can make stats say whatever you want them to, to, to say. I'm a pastor. I've done that before. Um, <laughs> in the 2016 election, 66% of the registered voters in Alabama actually voted. So we're way above the national average as far as voting is concerned. But that still leaves a lot of people who didn't vote. As a matter of fact, only 33% of registered voters in the state of Alabama voted in the primaries this year. I mean, that means that just a small handful, a minority, are determining the course for the entire country. I, I think you know that already. You probably heard stats like this before. But what about voter turnout among Christians? If we're supposed to be great stewards, what, how has that looked? Well, according to a website called MyFaithVotes.com, by the way, Brian Shoup um, is, is a volunteer for this website, and it's strictly a, a website to get people to register to vote, especially Christians. According to their website, one out of four people in our country who identify themselves as Christians doesn't vote. That's approximately 25 million votes that don't vote. Obviously, that can turn an election in one direction or another. George Barna says that the Christian vote is actually much closer to the national average, which means that many more than 25 million Christians didn't vote. Here's my point. My point is we are stewards of the gospel and to everything that God has entrusted to our care. And one of the things I believe he's entrusted to our care is our governmental system because of where we live, because of the nature. Now, if we lived in Paul's time, we wouldn't have had it. Our only weapon would have been prayer, right? Prayer and sharing the gospel with individuals. But that's not the case in the country we live in. And as a result, I believe we should all take advantage of that. Anybody, you, you, I hope you don't hear an old man rattling on about why young people aren't voting. As a matter of fact, young people are starting to turn out to vote in great numbers. Instead... I hope you'll hear a Christian perspective, a heart that says, as followers of Christ, we need to be good stewards of everything, everything. Stewardship is not just about your money. Stewardship is about your time, your education, your family. It's about what God has given us as far as our government. So what are some issues to consider? We're all about to vote, right? We're all about to vote in November. 
for a new president, for a new senator, for a new Congress, for new local leaders? What issues should we consider as Christians when we go to vote? Now, let me premise this by saying I am a 61-year-old white male who's been raised in various cities. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. All of those things which are descriptions of me also give me a certain bias. As a matter of fact, everybody has a bias. Every single person in this room has a bias, so to speak. You know, you've got a biblical worldview, but you can't help it. You've got experience. You've got life. You've got things that have happened. And you try to not let your biases determine what you say, but you can't help it. None of us can because of the lives that we've lived. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you six items. Yeah, hang on. We still got more to go. Six items that I think should be, from my perspective, things to consider when we go to vote. Now, your list may be different than mine, but I believe all of these can be tethered to the Word of God. They're all clearly in the Word of God, and I think they're, they're for our age, in other words. They're for our time. They're for our nation where we live. In, in earlier times, in earlier periods, people may have worded it different. But I think the overarching ideas would probably be close to the same because they're dictated in the Word of God. So here we go. This is where it gets fun. First thing I think we should consider whenever we vote is the protection of the innocent, the protection of innocent lives. The Bible is so clear. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of his oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do, not, do no wrong or violence to the alien, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. There's so many passages I can talk about the shedding of innocent blood. And our call as both the nation, the, our call as Christians, but also from the nation of Israel, that, that we are to protect innocent lives. And I find that there is no more unprotected innocent lives than babies in the womb, personally. I, I believe they're unprotected and they need to be protected. But protection of the innocent does not just simply stop at unborn babies. We need to protect innocent lives all around. I, I read an article recently that argued... Um, that all pro-lifers should also be against capital punishment. And that's why I, tie, I said to this, protection of innocent lives. The protection of the innocent. Now, also, let me say this. Um, you may not, you can disagree with me on this, please. This is not the word of God. This is barely the word of Bart. But um, <laughs> I have difficulty with capital punishment, not because we're putting people to death who deserve or who have created horrible crimes, but because of the number of people who have been wrongly convicted. And to me, we got to make sure that the people that we're putting in jail, and especially, so I have, a little, I have some trouble with capital punishment right now in our age, simply because too many people, because of DNA and evidence and other things, have been found to be innocent but are in jail and sentenced to death. Now, that's me. But I think we should be pro-life in all of our aspects. Jeremiah 1.5, the passage you know well, 
It says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. God cares about the unborn. He, he sees the unborn. He has purposes for the not yet born. And we need to be a people who protect, I think, innocent lives in all aspects. Proverbs 6.16 6, says this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood. By the way, hands that shed innocent blood seems really obvious on this list. Haughty eyes, lying tongue. The Lord hates sin in all its forms, but one of them is the shedding of innocent blood. You'll see this over and over and over again in various lists. We need to protect the innocent. So when I go to vote, I, it's on my mind. Who, who are our candidates that are helping protect innocent lives in all its formats? And by the way, I think this extends to all racial discussions. I think this extends to all economic discussions. I think protection of the innocent is something we should continue to press forward. Though pro-life may be, the protection of the unborn may be the big circle in this category, I believe it extends to all different parts of our lives. We still good? All right, here's the next one. Preservation of religious liberty. The preservation of religious liberty. One of the freedoms we have in this country is to worship freely. Peter, when he was told, you can't preach, you can't preach that anymore. He said, ah, we got to obey God rather than men. Now, fortunately, in this country, we've been established. One of our constitutional rights is religious liberty. And I would contend that that freedom is being pressed upon in many different in many different states. So when I go to vote for a candidate, I, or we go to vote for candidates, I think that who's going to preserve religious liberty should be something we consider as we go to, as we go to vote. Third category I think we should think of is uh, one that's in our documents as well, which is liberty and justice for whom? I mean all. Listen to me carefully, people. We cannot, as Christians, in good conscience, say that we want liberty and justice for most. I, if we, I believe God has called us to stop doing wrong, learn to do right, seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Because we are all, male and female, created in the image of God. Every single person you leave this, when you leave this church, every single person you see will be a person that God died for. Now, I think this extends across the board. Please hear me in love. I believe that this extends across the board, not to just racial issues, but to gender issues as well. Even though, I'm going to come back to the gender issue in just a moment, so don't get worked up too soon. Um, but I think liberty and justice for all in our, we need to have a love for all men and women, all people, everywhere. And in the church, when we've gotten in the most trouble, I think one of we've gotten in the most trouble 
is we see a people group and we think God hates that people group. So we're going to help God with his purposes and his plans by hating that people group as well. Now, it's a false theology because God, I don't think, hates that people group. I think God hates sin, but not the people. And so we need to, in, we need to see liberty and justice for all extend across the format. And so I, when I'm voting for a candidate, I want to know a candidate that's going to extend this freedom of liberty and justice for all. Now, just to show you that I do believe in gender identification. Um, oh, I, I got too excited again. Um, I'm trying to move forward. Uh, yeah. There is a recognition of divine order. A recognition of divine order. Genesis 2.20. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the men's rib, man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Here's my point in reading this passage to you from Genesis. I believe marriage in the created order was established by God. It was not established by government. It was not established by a ruling and reigning organization. Instead, it's been, it was established by God. Therefore, I don't think government can redefine what marriage is. Because God's divine order is the way he, he's made it. Now, if two people of various gender, um, two males, two females want to spend their lives together, that's their call. But according to God's divine order, I would not call that marriage. You may kind of get quiet in here. Because it's God's divine order. It can be called a lot of things, but not, in my estimation, marriage. I believe that divine order, by the way, extends not just to the family, but to every aspect of our lives. Let me give you an example. Hebrews says this, during the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. What I'm saying is even in the Godhead, there's divine order. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all three God, three in one. The Trinity is, I don't know about you, maybe you understand it completely and totally. And I, There's a point where my intellectual capability comes to the end of its rope. And in faith, I have to walk it out. But I, I do know this, that in that order, there is an order. And divine order is not a bad word. As a matter of fact, I'd rather have order than chaos. I don't know about you. But I think when we follow God's divine order, and it can play itself out in a, in a lot of different ways, but I think there has to be a recognition in some way that we as followers of Jesus Christ are servants of God. We are in order by being servants of God. And so as I vote, I'm going to vote. I want someone who recognizes that they're there is a divine 
There's a divine order. Here's a key one for today. It's care for the outsider. For me, care for the outsider. I don't know if you remember, but Abraham, when he went to bury Sarah, uh, his wife, he pleaded to the people and said, look, I'm an alien in this land. Would you sell me some land so that I can bury her? And in Leviticus, Moses uh, tells the people, basically, look, love the alien, love the outsider, take care of the people who are living in your midst. Love him as yourself, for you are aliens in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is God speaking to them about taking care of those who are outside. In Matthew, Jesus says, For I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Now, I understand that stranger could mean a lot of different things. And maybe I'm taking it a little too far outside to talk about the idea of the outsider, the alien, the immigrant. But it has been a characteristic of our nation, so much so that we put it on the Statue of Liberty. Give me your tired, your poor. Oh, no, not today. A couple of things here. I am not saying that we should just have open borders. I'm, th- I'm saying the government should do its job by establishing merciful, reasonable, Paths to citizenship. Since we're all friends here, um, I'll tell you what bugs the heck out of me is when Christians give off the attitude that we're inside the gate, let's shut the gate and lock it so that no one else can get in. To me, we need to act Christianly. We need to act like we love people. Now, again, I think it's a complicated issue. Don't hear me. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying we should, again, it's just free-for-all or willy-nilly. But we should vote for people who are going to make some decisions about how are we going to care for the outsider. Again, this is one of my hearts. And I believe it's tethered, again, in the Bible that we should consider. We good? All right, here's one. You're going to love this. Character of our leader. The character of our leader. It is true. We are not electing a pastor-in-chief. I I understand that. That is not what our... But if you remember a number of years ago, I did a series called The Heart of a King. And in that series, Samuel goes to anoint a king to replace Saul. And he gets to Jesse's house, where God has told him. Jesse's oldest comes in. He's tall, handsome, rugged. And Samuel says, this has got to be the guy. And God says to him, do not consider his height or the appearance. I've rejected him. Why? The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at what? The Lord looks at the heart. God was looking for a leader who was after his own heart. He was looking for a heart that would lead the nation. And then we did this study where we examined all the kings of Judah 
and saw that as the heart of the leader went, so went the nation. Now, I understand a king has a different role than a president, but at some point, I believe it is incumbent upon us to look and say, God, help me by showing me the character of the leader. John Adams once said, because power corrupts, society demands formal authority and character increase as the importance of the position increase. In other words, the higher up you go, the more your character needs to be in line. And so I think I'm just giving you six things to think about. Protection of innocent lives. What was the second one I said? Preservation of religious liberty. Thanks. You're going to help me review because my, my mind's going blank. Third one was liberty and justice for all. Fourth, recognition to divine order. Fifth, care for the outsider and then character of a leader. These are just six. You may have six different ones. Again, notice that my list did not include economic prosperity. I honestly, I think economic prosperity would follow any of these. I mean, if we voted in this line. So we need to be concerned about what God is concerned about. So what are some pitfalls or ruts that we should avoid? Pitfalls are, as you go to vote and think about it, what are some pitfalls or possible pitfalls or ruts to avoid? And I'm going to give you these in all humility. This is where I could get in the most trouble. I understand that. This is where we might have the most disagreements. But I, I'm praying that you'll give me humility. Uh, you'll give me humility. You'll give me grace. Uh, I probably need you to give me humility too. But give me grace. And just listen and also to examine your heart. The first pitfall I think we should avoid is that there are no only issues. By that... I mean, you're going to look back at this list of six and say, wait, I, I got no one who fits all six of these. More likely, you're going to go to one of these issues and say, if my person doesn't agree with this one position, you're going to make it an only issue. This is the only issue that matters right here. Now, I can be totally frank and blunt with you because you love me and... Um, I hope you do, uh, you love me, is that many times in Christian circles, we have only issued the pro-life issue. We say, if, they, if it's not pro-life, this person's not pro-life, it doesn't matter what else they're like, I'm not going to vote for them. I would ask you to reconsider that idea in the fact that, let's just take, um, let's take religious liberty, for instance. What if you had a pro-life candidate who was against religious liberty and oppressed religious freedom and oppressed religious groups and said you can't worship anymore? Now you've got versus a guy who says, I, I believe in religious liberty, but I'm not pro-life. Where, where are you going to go? What are we going to do? And we're getting there. We're getting into these complicated issues. And we, in many ways, we see compromise as a terrible word. 
And I would say, look, I don't want to live a life of compromise. I want to live wholly and fully before the Lord. But we have complicated decisions. And is half a loaf better than no loaf at all? Half a loaf of bread better than no loaf of bread at all? By the way, if you wanted to vote for a pro-life candidate who is against religious liberty, well, welcome to Stalin's Russia. You could have voted for Joseph Stalin at the end of World War II. Anti-abortion, women's rights, and totally against religious liberty. Crushed it. And he wasn't really pro-life. He killed millions of people. And his pro-life position, by the way, was not religiously based. It was based on, we lost a lot of people in World War II. We need to not allow it. Because up until that time, at the end of World War II, actually the USSR, Russia, had been a place where abortion was legal. And they changed it at the end of World War II. What I'm saying is this. I know that's kind of a, wow, that's a slap in the face. But I'm saying to us, Yes, we can't get the pro-life issue wrong, but it can't be the only issue. We need to examine a totality. We need to be praying in the spirit, praying that God would give us wisdom, pray that God would give us life. And and I say this again in all humility because there's probably nothing I feel more strongly about than the pro-life issue. Protection of the unborn. We need wisdom. God give us grace. But it is a pitfall or a rut if we come to a place where we say the only issue, let's say character, the only issue that matters is the character of a leader. None of the rest of the stuff matters. We've got to avoid only issues. You, you understand? Okay, second thing is we need to avoid the loss of a biblical worldview. The loss of a biblical worldview. And we may be saying, okay, ah, that's not me. I don't have a... I would contend that all of us have had our biblical worldview whittled down just a little bit because of the culture in which we live. It is a constant battle to hang on to our biblical worldview. Now, the people who wrote the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution are our leaders, are our forefathers. There's a lot of debate on uh, were these guys really godly or biblical or listen, they had their flaws. I mean, huge flaws. Huge flaws. But the one thing they had is they saw the world through a biblical perspective. Timothy says, all, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, connect, correcting, and the training of righteousness. The word of God. He's basically saying we need a biblical worldview. Jesus says the same thing. And in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed where? From where? See, there's a certain worldview. Even if you say these guys are flawed, they own slaves, some were this kind of religious sect, another were this kind of religious sect, or this kind of... But they had a biblical worldview because they recognized there was a creator. If we wrote the Declaration of Independence today... We hold these truths to be self-evident that all humans have determined by their humanity that we have these rights. I mean, really, we would, humanism has so permeated us that we, we no longer have a, a, a worldview that sees our God as a creator. 
And they're saying our rights as humans comes from a higher moral authority. The challenge we have today is that we have no higher moral authority because we've lost our biblical worldview. And as a result, we live in this age where everything that can go, goes. James Madison wrote that when the country loses its moral perspective, and by that he meant moral grounding in God, then the Constitution will turn like a net that a whale can swim through. He was saying, look, our, our, our moral purview of God really determines the ability to govern. And our Constitution will be... And my fear is that we've reached that tipping point. These two truths may appear diametrically opposed, but I think in grace they go together. Hanging on to a biblical worldview, hanging on to the person and work of the Holy Spirit to guide and direct us and lead us so that we know when we vote, and I want to encourage you, don't vote strictly by party. Don't, vote, don't vote strictly by who looks the best. Don't vote by, instead, have some sort of framework that you measure by which a candidate should get your vote. And again, there, no one's going to meet all of these. But by God's grace, he'll give you wisdom. He'll give you direction on how, how to vote. I read this psalm at the beginning of this service or this verse, but now, Lord, what do I look for? My hope is in him. My hope is in you. All throughout our life as a church, we have hung on firmly to that our hope is in the good news the gospel of Jesus Christ. At different times in your lives, for those of you who've been a part of fullness for a long time, you may have been rocked by the world. You may have been slapped down. You may have, you may have been just brought to your knees. But I hope when you come on Sunday morning, my hope is that you see that our hope is not in a person because, as Colson said, the kingdom of God is not coming riding in on Air Force One. But our hope is in the good news of Jesus Christ. It's why Paul can say this. Once you are alienated from God and we're enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. Oh my, don't you want that freedom? We talk about freedom in our country, but the freedom that we all need is to be, be presented before God without accusation and without blemish in his sight. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you have heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven. Listen, I think, again, Christians should be a voting people. 
you're not registered to vote, register to vote and vote. Consider different items and do so in a balanced, godly, spirit-led perspective that will guide your path, that will guide our direction. And God, give us wisdom in his grace to be proclaimers of the gospel. Because again, all of this comes back to our ability to proclaim the good news to the world around us. Stand up with me if you would. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time. We pray that we will be a gospel-centered people. We pray that in everything that we do, we will look to you. Our hope is in you. I pray that, Spirit of God, you would guide and direct this discussion in our hearts and our minds. I pray that no accusations of the enemy will be allowed to kind of infiltrate, but instead, Spirit of God, Spirit of truth, you would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, we do pray for wisdom in the days ahead about how we should vote. Lord, we declare that no matter, we believe that no matter what happens, whoever's inaugurated in January of 2021, that Jesus Christ is still on the throne. That God, you still rule, you still reign. And we pray that your kingdom would come. You are the king. You are the one who rules and reigns. And we pray for that. Lord, let your grace be present in this room and in our hearts. As a matter of confession of where our hearts lie, who we are in Christ, let's pray together the Lord's Prayer, which is on your screen. Just say this with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we leave today, let's worship the Lord.